Hello and welcome to the Curator on Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week ahead of Germany's upcoming federal elections later this month, our weekly series looks at the German Greens. While most of Germany's politicians now speak the language of climate change, the Greens are the political party that has everyone in Germany and Europe talking. Plus the DJ and music journalist Kate Hutchinson discusses the importance of jazz clubs and how they have shaped the genre over the past century. When the style of ragtime and blues swept from New Orleans up to New York and beyond, as black musicians fled the rural south in search of better lives and work in the Great Migration, the music filled vast ballrooms with big swing bands to match. This was the sound of the jazz age, the music of dancing. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. As we look back on the past week, let's hear a roundup of all the things we know now that we didn't know seven days ago. Here is Monocle's Andrew Muller with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week that if we fear the consequences of COVID-19, it is probably only because we are either godless heathens unconvinced that this world is merely some sort of antechamber to the cloud-born harp farm where all is peace and bliss, or perhaps that we are sin-burdened infidels well aware that our eternal destination is somewhere rather warmer. <laughs> And we learned this from Tate Reeves, governor of Mississippi. That is a terribly cheap shot, honestly. Do better. <laughs> governor Reeves, accounting for the laggardly take-up of vaccines among his remaining voters, explained that Mississippians have their minds on loftier concerns than just not dying of more or less avoidable symptoms of a rampaging virus. The governor's words will now be voiced by Monocle's Hellfire and Brimstone desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I'm often asked by some of my friends on the other side of the aisle about COVID and why does it seem like folks in Mississippi and maybe in the Mid-South are a little less scared, shall we say. When you believe in eternal life, when you believe that living on this earth is just a blip on the screen, then you don't have to be so scared of things. There will now be a short pause while listeners take a wild guess which American state has this week the highest per capita rate of new COVID cases in the United States and the second highest per capita rate of overall deaths. No prizes will be awarded at this time. Oh. Elsewhere... We continued to learn of the astonishing thin-skinnedness of Russia, a nation which is, lest we forget, geographically vast, militarily powerful, culturally marvelous, historically maybe a bit weird, but really, who isn't? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, we haven't given the general muttered agreement file a run for a while, actually. Nice to have it back. 
Anyway, we learned that the audiences at the comedy clubs for which Moscow is justly renowned will heretofore have to do without the whimsical stylings of Idrak Mirzalizadi, a Belarusian comedian resident in the Russian capital, now packing his bags, supervision of which by hatchet-faced stooges in fur hats and greatcoats clutching Kalashnikovs could not be confirmed as this monologue went to air. Mr. Mirzalazadi made a joke which failed to amuse someone at Russia's Ministry of the Interior, which has now gonged the hapless japester off in thunderously forbidding terms which will now be translated by Monocle's Russian dudgeon desk chief and producer of this monologue, Christy Evans. Idrak Mirzalizade made expressions that incite hatred and enmity towards persons of Russian nationality humiliating their human dignity. In this regard, his presence on the territory of the Russian Federation was recognised as threatening public order, the rights and legitimate interests of others. Everyone's a critic. But we further learned that such is Russia's hypersensitivity to the slightest slight that even the neighbours are having to tiptoe in a manner of speaking. We learned that as one drives towards Grenzied Jakobselv in the deep north of Norway... Come on, Christy, let's have some howling blizzard wind and polar bears or whatever. The road runs alongside a creek which delineates Norway's border with Russia, and we learned that local authorities have felt it necessary to put up a sign saying, no peeing towards Russia. The fact that the sign is in English either suggests that tourists are more of a problem than locals, or, and we cannot, we fear, rule this altogether out, that the story is basically nonsense, waved into print around the world under the too-good-to-check clause beloved of journalists. But we did learn, because by golly we do our research, that Norway has had since 1950 dedicated laws governing conduct along its border, specifically prohibiting, quote, offensive behaviour directed at the neighbouring state or its authorities. The practical upshot of which we learned is that contributing to the flow of the Jakobselva River can get you three months in the clink. Let's have some twee pastoral English music now. Because, here in the UK, we learned of a more imaginative line in judicially imposed punishments. We learned that a judge in Leicester had sentenced a young man convicted of taking too close an interest in white supremacist nonsense and bomb-making instructions to instead read the works of Jane Austen, Thomas Hardy, Anthony Trollope and Charles Dickens, and to report back to court to be tested on what he'd learned quite possibly to really dislike white English people if he makes it through that lot. While it is arguable that the beak might have more usefully directed the defendant in this instance towards James Baldwin and Webb Du Bois, there might be something usefully deterring in this idea. British crime may well ebb dramatically if miscreants, scofflaws and ne'er-do-wells were threatened on a scale starting at, say, Charlotte Bronte for shoplifting, rising to George Eliot for murder. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew.
Our next highlight comes from Monday's edition of the Monocle Daily. Every week until the 26th of September, we are running a series looking at Germany's upcoming federal elections, the respective fortunes of the frontrunners and what the country's next chancellor will have in their entree. This week we looked at the German Greens, on whom Monocle's news editor Chris Jemmerk brings us this report. It's never going to hurt your party's political fortunes when the very issue upon which your foundation is built, in this case, being green, becomes one of the top issues in the public consciousness. Record flooding in Germany earlier this summer has only raised the stakes for tackling climate change. It's not easy being green. I think it's very clearly, and, and voters also say that in polls, that we are the party that is most credible on, on having the right ideas and concepts to, to tackle climate change and how to combine that transition to a more sustainable way of doing industry, economy, and so on, while doing it in a social way. So I, I don't think that is easily going to go away because it's not something that we just jumped on now that it's on vogue but we i mean the whole reason the party exists for 40 years is to protect the environment and to fight against climate change that was daniel freund a senior mep for germany's greens and well he has a point while most of germany's politicians now speak the language of climate change the greens are the political party that has everyone in germany and europe talking the Greens are expecting to at least double their vote share this September, from a paltry 9% in 2017, catapulting them into second place and giving them a solid chance of entering government for only the second time in their history. The first time being back in the early 2000s under their perhaps best-known veteran politician Joschka Fischer, who would go on to become foreign minister. This time around, they are led by a relative unknown, especially internationally in 42-year-old Annalena Baerbock. The Greens, a one-time party of reactionists founded back in 1980, have sought to remake their image in recent decades into a more centrist, even business-friendly party. But just what kind of direction would a Chancellor Annalena Baerbock take German leadership in the world after 16 years of Angela Merkel and her doctrine of stability? Well you'll be unsurprised to hear that it starts with taking a more aggressive lead on climate change. It'll do fine. It's beautiful. And I think we in the European Union, we want to take the lead here, right? In change and showing the world that it's possible to have change to work towards climate change in a way that it's really feasible. This is Henrike Hahn, a European parliamentarian for the Greens from Bavaria. She says that the European Union's own targets for combating climate change, the so-called Fit for 55 plan proposed earlier this summer, just doesn't really add up. From our green perspective, the Fit for 55 package is not ambitious enough, neither to achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement and to reduce global warming to 1.5 degrees, nor to achieve the Commission's own climate goal of becoming climate neutral by 2050 at the latest. We still have to negotiate with the Commission now that the package has been published. And this is, again, why it is so important to have in the Council a very strong German climate-oriented government, of course, right, to implement really ambitious goals, because at the moment what we have is not ambitious enough. In short, the Greens intend to make climate change a central tenet of their Europe and domestic policy, 
At home, they propose creating a climate change ministry, which would have veto rights over other ministries if their policies don't conform to the targets of the Paris Climate Accords. And abroad, their vision is for Germany and its businesses to be leaders of the transition to greener forms of energy. One example of that? Pushing for better European mobility and public transport, cutting down on short-haul flight routes and pushing instead for better connected trains. And moving beyond climate change and rail, it's this European-first focus that runs through much of the party's foreign policy, with the possible exception of military engagements, where the Greens tend to emphasize disarmament and humanitarian aid over additional spending on defense. More on that in a later episode of this series. But generally speaking, the party does tend to push for European priorities to take the lead. Well, Germany should play a European role on the world stage. This is Reinhard Bütikofer, a German MEP and former co-chair of the Greens, who's also one of their most veteran experts on foreign policy. For a while, it may have looked as if Germany was big enough to forever eat from the same bowl with uh, the big powers, the US and China. But that is not the case, really. Our spoon is not long enough. Our German spoon is not long enough to do that in the medium and long term. So either we use the European spoon or we will go hungry. This also relates to one of the other hallmarks of the Greens and Annalena Baerbock this year a more aggressive and uncompromising stance in defense of European values like human rights, especially when it comes to standing up to autocratic regimes. It's among the areas where the Greens have probably sought to distinguish themselves the most from Merkel's preference for more diplomatic engagement, something Merkel's successor at the Christian Democrats, Amin Laschet, would hope to carry forward. Laschet is basically Merkel in a suit when it comes to Russia and China. There was this speech he gave at the Konrad Adenauer Foundation, and then later in the discussion he was asked explicitly, is there anything you would change on Russia policy? And he said no. That's Jana Puglierin, head of the Berlin office of the European Council on Foreign Relations. So I think it's not quite clear how much change you will see in German, Germany's foreign policy approach after the election. It highly depends on the coalition. And my fear is that you have kind of forces that work against each other. Like on Russia, you have basically Merkel in a suit or even maybe Russia would be even more open to continue this newest path to have talks with Putin again and would be closer to Macron when it comes to Russia. And then you have Baerbock being very hawkish on Russia. And if they are in the same government, I, I think kind of these forces would work against each other. And at the end, we would have standstill. This is with many issues. Same with China, same with the Eurozone. So I don't know how much change we will see. So before the Greens can pursue their own agenda, they're first going to have to exercise some of that Merkelian-style engagement to negotiate the best possible coalition deal for their party. Consider that the first test of if these new and improved Greens really have what it takes to usher Germany and Europe into the post-Merkel era. For Monocle 24, I'm Chris Chermak. Monocle's news editor Chris Chermak there.
Staying in Germany now for our next highlight. For last weekend's edition of The Stack, the team headed to Hamburg for a preview of the 2021 edition of Indicon. This annual festival of independent publishing has been shining a light on magazine, book and zine publishers from all over the world since 2014, and this year's edition got underway this weekend. The show's host, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, recently caught up with Nina Prada, curator of this year's event to find out more. I'm here representing Die Brüder Publishing and IndieCon happened last year and is also hopefully happening this year. It was one of the only independent publishing fairs to take place in Germany. And this year, the theme is reflections as last year was also impossible. And it'll be taking place again at Oberhafen from the 3rd to the 5th of September and bringing together international agents of print from all over the world. And, and, and that's a remarkable thing because I did have a look at the lineup of publishers as well. A lot of people from Germany, but there are a strong international presence as well, which, you know, I think hopefully, you know, there's a climate of optimism, do you think, with the independent publishers? Because I feel, I don't know about you, Nina, I feel that people needed those titles, even in the peak of the pandemic. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it was disruptive, but I think, you know, it's essential to people's lives as well. Yeah, I definitely think publishing in a way has had a comeback thanks to the pandemic in the same way that, of course, spaces like book fairs or have been missing in a way. So there's all more sort of hype and excitement to finally get together and share all these titles that maybe haven't found release dates until now. There's uh, definitely a lot of enthusiasm there for this to take place. And I mean, IndieCon will have around 80 publishers participating and uh, it'll be a lot of fun just to celebrate and come together. Uh, We're also bringing back the conference, which is a format that took a little break and now it's back. And we're really pleased to have amazing publishers like Off2 Magazine, um, Sandwich, Club Sandwich, and also Daddy Magazine, and also This Is Badland, so this will definitely spark a really interesting conversation. Oh, and it's in collaboration with Die Zeit and Design Export. So it will really be kind of like an international publishing summit in a way, answering precisely these challenges of what does publishing for social change mean? What is critical design for critical futures? How has the pandemic maybe changed certain topics or why are certain topics maybe more necessary to talk about right now and their publishing of course is the perfect vehicle to do this well and another thing that indicon i think is very nice place like indicon is the discovery of new titles because sometimes people don't know certain titles or publishers exist and i think it's a good way to spread the word if you know what i mean right Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a gathering. It's a place where people come together and share. Maybe people who for the first time have published even their house in a way. And then, of course, it's the perfect time to share new titles and 
And we definitely have a really uh, vibrant list of exhibitors, everything from resale prints to lifestyle to um, questions around identity. And many of them are reflecting on issues that were pertinent in the pandemic, whether that's around care, there's highlights like Jacobin magazine, um, Wobi or such. So it's a, it's a are, really exciting list that you can also find on our website. <laughs> are there many newcomers on this year's Indicom? Yes, every year there are newcomers, actually. Independent magazines are really interesting in that way, too, that they crop up like wildflowers in a way. So every year there's a whole new set of initiatives and groups who have decided that it is time to make a magazine about this particular topic. That's fantastic. And, and you know, question, like, for example, if someone is in Hamburg or is there... The public can join, I guess, uh, Indicom, right? So tell us a bit more, even for someone who perhaps wants to visit Hamburg that particular weekend, you know, yes. perhaps it's a good thing to do there as well. Yeah, well, Indicon is free. So it's open to the public, which is also really important to Die Brüder and this culture is made accessible. This year, of course, like last year, Corona challenges have forced us to come up with a safe environment. So you have to book a slot in advance. But other than that, it is still completely free. All you have to do is maybe, you know, make your presence known in advance and then you can come too. Nina Prada, the curator of this year's edition of Indicon, in conversation with Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco for last Saturday's episode of The Stack. Still to come here on The Curator, we meet the lead guitarist for Roxy Music, Phil Manzanera. We look at the importance of jazz clubs and how they've shaped the genre over the past century. And we head to Oregon to hear about Nike's sports uniform design process. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. Next up, we head to the United States for a highlight from this week's Monocle on Design. Clothing by the world-famous sportswear brand Nike can be found on elite athletes competing in sports, ranging from basketball to golf and at the recent Tokyo Olympics, skateboarding too. Part of the team charged with developing team uniforms is Donovan Harris, Nike's uniform innovation design lead. Monaco's Nick Manis was joined by Donovan down the line from the the company's headquarters in Oregon to discuss Nike's design process, one that always starts with the athletes. In this highlight, he begins by explaining how the needs of competitors changes drastically from sport to sport when it comes to performance and styling. I think a lot of it is the interaction with the athletes. Every sport has its own distinct needs, right? You know, working with NBA, like I really pulled up the innovation behind the materials and the, the stuff that we did, but then also realizing it's not 
all about 100% performance. You have to make sure at one point at Nike, it was all about lightweight, having zero distraction. But at the same time, you have to remember that athletes themselves want the feel special when they wear the stuff. Some of the athletes actually felt like they wanted more weight because it meant something to them, so like the feel, the jersey. That was a great example from uh, NBA. NFL was all about durability with zero distraction. You know, they, they have so much gear on. Sometimes less is more when it comes to a design. Another key learning, too, with NFL uh, was when we would fit stuff on our uh, athletes and uh, models to, you know, basically to create the styles and make sure we get the right look and um, range of movement. A lot of times we would do it when they're standing, right? But with NFL, one of the things we learned is like, what's the the the, the form or the the uh, uh, what the stance that the actual athlete is in the most, and let's fit according to that. You know, that way when they're in their optimal state, they have zero distraction versus just standing. Because if you're just standing, you know that's just you know one situation you're in when you're performing that's not your prime positioning what else are you taking into consideration when you're designing these garments outside of the the physical performance of the actual clothing one of the things that we realized at nike i think working there we've kind of evolved through different stages at one point we were all about performance innovation like i said ultra lightweight what has the most range of motion what is going to get you there quicker and faster? But then we, after talking to athletes, it's more than that. It's that mental state, too, of having that advantage. You know, because if you have something that's super performance-oriented and innovative, that it's going to get you above and beyond. But your confidence level of how you look is not there. Like, if you feel like you look hokey and almost embarrassed, it's going to inhibit your performance. And so we realize that. And so when we dive into each sport, we dive into each athlete on what really matters to them and really focus on that. And it's different for every athlete, but we want to highlight that and enhance it to the point where they feel special and they have an advantage, not only from a performance standpoint, but just confidence. That's a huge part. I mean, it's just as important as the performance innovation side. And I mean, what do those discussions look like with the athletes? So you're asking them what feels cool, what makes them feel good, or is it much more about you as a designer thinking about or or looking for inspiration elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, when we start a project, that's the first thing we do. You know, we look at the end use of everything and what the intent is, specifically like within tennis. There's a couple of different approaches we have. Like Serena, hers is very unique. It's only for her. It doesn't go to retail. It's meant for that moment and that moment only. And we do that intentionally so we can really dive in and not be inhibited by all the other stuff around it, like margins and uh, limitations with materials from like wash testing and stuff like that. But then for Rafa, for instance, when we do his collection, his, his stuff all goes to retail. And so we do have different standards that we have to hit. We have to make sure it's wearable on the court, not only just for him, but for others. We look at those two 
different approaches and I adjust accordingly. So we get briefed that, that up front so we know what we're getting up against and we'll attack it differently based on that. And then I guess just finally, I'm curious, when you're thinking about end product, are you thinking about the context of, of where these clothing items are going to be worn? I mean, typically, say, tennis clothes aren't worn socially, but certain clothes for, say, skateboarding or, or even NBA jerseys do find their way into people's wardrobes. Are you thinking about that? And, and, and why do you think some sports lend themselves to, I guess, landing in casual wardrobes and others don't? I can kind of tell you like how we started off um, and then kind of branch into why skate is kind of where it is. When we first started the Olympics project, our original intent was to highlight each country's history with sport when what they're known for. For example, USA, we focused more on basketball, and that's why we had the tank silhouette. Baseball for Japan, we highlighted actually their first professional baseball silhouette team. And then one of the cool things about skateboarding, it's all about appropriation, right? Taking something and making it their own. And we were very sport-focused at the time. But when we had our summit with athletes, we talked to them and our collab artist, Para. We started diving into the silhouettes, and one of the whole call-outs was, this is great, you know, we're highlighting sport and everything, but what about the history of skate? And so we started looking into it more from a workwear stance. And you look back at skate, you know, like I said, skate has a a reappropriated different sports within the, the, you know, through different generations of skateboarding. Um, Like golf, for instance, there was an era, there was a, a generation where golf was super influencing skate. Um, but the thing is, by doing that, I, I think you, you look at the sport skate too. It's not like you're changing to go skate. You're wearing what you wear to go skate. And so you have to think about that whole process. It's not like some sports where oh, I got to go into the, the locker room change. And then I'm, skate's not about that. It's a lifestyle. Basically, when you wake up and go to bed. So you have to keep that in mind. So it has to function, look good, the whole whole gamut. Donovan Harris, Nike's Uniform Innovation Design Lead, in conversation with Monocle's Nick Muniz for the latest edition of Monocle on Design. Staying in the world of architecture and design now, as for this week's episode of Tall Stories, we visit the Colombian city of Zipaquira. Not far from the nation's capital of Bogota, Zipaquira was for years best known for its cathedral made of salt, until a local hero won the Tour de France and turned the city into a cycling mecca. To tell us more, here is Monocle's correspondent in Bogota, Anastasia Maloney. Lying 2,650 metres high against the backdrop of the Andes Mountains is the Colombian town of Zipaquira, about an hour's drive northeast from the capital Bogota. Zipaquira is a tourist town known for having the world's only cathedral made of salt, sculpted from a vast underground salt mine that visitors flock to. But these days, the town of some 130,000 inhabitants, surrounded by flour and potato farms, is now better known for producing world-class cyclists. The encircling forest of peaks of the Andes foothills 
make ideal training ground for riders. It's here where native son Egan Bernal, the 2019 Tour de France champion, would scale the misty and chilly slopes as a young boy, pedaling on a borrowed bike to reach 3,000 meters high, breathing in the thin air where eagles fly. High altitude training in the Andes means Colombian cyclists are highly sought after by pro tour teams in Europe to ascend the brutal peaks of Italy and France on the elite tour. Since Bernal was crowned Tour de France and this year's Hero d'Italia champion, hands over the baton to the new champion, Egan Bernal, the first man. The image of Zupacira's most illustrious son can be seen on posters and walls around town. Well, what a special moment for Colombian cycling. But now also appears on a painted mural wearing the victor's yellow jersey and with the caption, The Pride of My Homeland, a reference to the song that Colombian musician Carlos Vives composed for the country cyclists that include Olympic gold medal winners. In 2019, after Bernal won the Tour de France, he received a hero's welcome in his hometown. Thousands of cheering fans packed into Zipaquira's main colonial square, who had followed his gruelling ascents on giant screens that City Hall had installed next to the old and now defunct railway station. Bernal's victory, the youngest Latin American rider to win the Tour de France, has spurred a small cottage industry in Zipaquira built around cycling. Bike stores, along with roadside and garage bike repair shops, have sprung up around town. Local tour guides offer cycling tours and mountain bike trails for amateur club riders, as well as high altitude training camps for elite cyclists. On the back of Bernal's fame and victory, Zipaquira now receives about 3,500 cyclists every weekend. Many take a pit stop to pose for a photo at the mural of the local hero, who, like many Colombian riders, came from humble and poor beginnings. As Ipaquira's famous Salt Cathedral has become a place of pilgrimage, so too has Bernal's mural. At weekends, cafes along the mountain roads near town sell freshly squeezed orange juice and warm cheese curd rolls to cyclists taking a break. Tapping into Colombia's cycling culture, Every Sunday in many cities across the country, cyclists are given both way and priority. Zipaquira's main streets are turned into cycling routes from 7am until 1pm, as sees miles of roads closed to traffic. It follows the example set by Bogota back in the 1970s, where the world's first weekend cycling routes were launched. Today, Bogota's Sunday cycle routes make up 80 miles of roads free from gridlock traffic and are filled with about 1.5 million cyclists and joggers. In Zipaquira, the mayor plans to build more bike lanes in the town streets and increase funding for after-school cycling clubs. It's a popular measure welcomed by parents who see cycling as a proven and tested way to keep their children away from crime, gangs and drugs. With such initiatives introduced and the Andes Mountains as a prime training ground, it's likely this central town of Colombia will continue to be the birthplace of champion riders for years to come. Monaco's correspondent in Bogota, Anastasia Maloney, there for the latest edition of Tall Stories. 
You are listening to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Marcus Hippi. Next, we're off to Porto to hear a recipe for a simple starter from Emmanuel de Sousa, owner of restaurant Early and Hotel Rosa et Al in the city's Bombard Arts District. Let's have a listen. Hi, I'm Emmanuel Souza, a chef based in Porto and co-author of the book The Townhouse Kitchen, The Daily Brunch with my sister Patricia Souza. We own Rosetal Townhouse, a boutique hotel in Porto and early a farm-to-table seasonal restaurant in the Bombarda Art District. And I'm here to introduce you to one of the recipes freely inspired in the book. The recipe that I'm bringing today is a mix of summer Produce. So it's figs with sugar snap peas and runner beans. And it's basically three ingredients that mix in a short period of time in summer. So you kind of like have to combine them in July to August. And it reminds me of, of course, summers in my grandmother's house where there was a huge fig tree. And I was always trying to catch the most ripe fig of them all with my grandfather. So you pick a bunch of runner beans and sugar snap peas and you cut them lengthwise very thinly. You boil for a brief period of time, a minute or so, the runner beans and then you cool them to room temperature. You mix everything with roasted garlic, salt, pepper, good extra virgin olive oil and a bit of lime, lemon or even cider vinegar and you let them marinate for a while. This is basically kind of like summer meals in Portugal. And then you grab one of the ripest figs that you can find and cut them in quarters. You put them over the salad and then you just put a splash of freshly grated nutmeg on top. And you have this kind of like warm nutty flavor over the sweetness of rip figs. If you find one of the true treasures of Algarve, which is the kind of like dried figs, just kind of like cut them very thinly and put it over the salad. The extra sweetness of the dried figs will be a very good point on the palate. Figs are always sweet, but they are different varieties. As an inverted flower that blossoms for the inside, you can have these black mission, which are the velvet blue ones, or as we call them, the Ping de Mel, which are kind of like the variants that we have in Portugal, in the south of Portugal. And you have also those pale greens. It depends on the flavor that you like. But if kind of like try with them all, the sweetness will counterbalance the freshness of the sugar snap peas and the runner beans. So it's always a good complement to both of them. Just kind of like see where the phase of the summer you are and choose the best one you can find. At Early and at Rosetal we usually serve it as a starter for a meal and in summer it really goes well because these marinated products that are usually done in any traditional family in Portugal, kind of like they are eaten cold, so it's a perfect way to open the palate for the bigger meal. So perfect point to kind of like start any meal or any lunch in warm days or summer breeze evenings meals with your friends. Still to come here on The Curator, Roxy Music's Phil Manzanera, a look at the importance of jazz clubs, and we round up the best programmes hitting televisions this season. Stay tuned. 
UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the curator of our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24 and I am Marcus Hippie. On this week's edition of Monocle on Culture, the show's host Robert Bound was joined by the TV critics Scott Bryan and Inku Kang to round up the best programmes hitting televisions in the US and UK this season. Here is the highlight. President, do you know a woman named Monica Lewinsky? That's me, that's my face. This isn't about justice. Then what is it about? Impeachment. William Jefferson Clinton, do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you God? I do. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Ha. Well, I think we all know where we are with this one. But, Ingu, can you set the scene for us a bit on impeachment American crime story? Picture it. 1997. Washington, D.C. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So this is the third season of American Crime Story, which, of course, made a huge splash with its first season, sort of recounting the O.J. Simpson trial. I think its second season about the spree killings of Andrew Cunanan sort of didn't do as well. And now we're back with a third season. This is a Ryan Murphy joint. It's going to have Sarah Paulson in it, obviously. Beanie Feldstein is going to play Monica Lewinsky. And it's really a, a show that feels like it's coming at like the currents of two big cultural happenings in at least the U.S. right now. One of which is to go back to these tabloid scandals of the 90s and go back to look at what perspectives were missing. And Impeachment, American Crime Story, is really going to focus on three women at the center of the scandal. Linda Tripp, played by Sarah Paulson, Monica Lewinsky, and Paula Jones. A lot of the show is about how these women's pain and their trauma get co-opted for nefarious purposes by people, by right-wing players who do not care about their sexual assaults or sexual harassment incidents. It's about taking these women and using them for their own personal gain. I think that the other cross-current was Me Too, right? Um, And I think we are really interested in revisiting a lot of these uh, stories that we thought we knew and looking at what it felt like to be in the female perspective, because we know more or less what Bill Clinton's uh, whole deal was. But we don't really know things from the Lewinsky-Jones angle. Uh, I think that the show takes a lot of creative license with Linda Tripp, because Linda Tripp is dead, while Monica Lewinsky is still alive. And so I think that she's sort of positioned a little bit as kind of a chess player a really devious chess player. But yeah, we'll see. Also, Clive Owen, a very British actor playing Bill Clinton, 
is, as we say uh, on Twitter, a choice. But who would expect anything else from Ryan Murphy? <laughs> yeah, and and you, it's fascinating, as you say. It is the the confluence of so many different things that have reared their heads necessarily in the last year or two. Um, Ingu Scott, um, what what's the sort of what what strikes you as the sort of atmosphere um, of of impeachment American crime story? As as Ingu says. You know, it's taking the side that wasn't that wasn't people weren't interested in, or the press weren't so interested in, and used it as prurience. But what's the what's the sort of vibe you're getting off off this? I mean, I think these sort of dramas, and there are quite a few at the moment that are looking back at periods of history that people are quite familiar are, uh, about, and then um, having a bit of a, um, a a retelling. I think already gets a large audience in because they feel very familiar to the story. Um, But then I think that what Ryan Murphy's always done so well is by having that attention to detail. So it feels like you are watching that era, even though it's been filmed two decades or even three decades on. And I think it's it's, it's an interesting one, this, because if you look at Ryan Murphy's work, he signed a um, $300 million deal with Netflix and he's created a string of programmes for them over the years. So The Politician, Hollywood, The Prom, Ratchet, and arguably, in my opinion, none of them have really ever been as popular and I think as, as well made as American Crime Story. But the other thing is that American Crime Story is still part of his old FX deal. So it might be on Netflix in the future, particularly internationally, because these dramas are. But it's actually tied to his old work, his his existing deal that he did prior to this big 300 million one. So there has been concerns about whether he's been spreading himself a bit too thinly by just working on multiple projects at the same time. But I think he still stands out in TV in in this era where you're having Hollywood stars crossing over all the time, so much money being pumped into it because he's always keen on bringing in perspectives and uh, bringing in a new angle to stories that you might already feel very familiar with. And the fact that they have Monica Lewinsky involved as a producer, she's been giving interviews in the US press over the last week saying that, uh, that she was involved in terms of giving notes that she had a um, therapist along with her to ensure that um, the story was being told but it wasn't trying to relive the trauma that she's experiencing and also that Monica really wanted to highlight about how she's experienced long-term implications in terms of cyberbullying in regards to this scenario and she never wanted um, this to be repeated for anyone else in the public eye again. It'll be interesting to see whether people's perception of this era will actually change. TV critics Inku Kang and Scott Bryan speaking to our very own Robert Bound for the latest edition of Monocle on Culture. Staying in the cultural realm now as last Sunday's edition of Meet the Writers took a slightly different direction as George Nagodwin spoke to Phil Manzanera. He's a writer but one who uses notes and staves rather than words. Manzanera shot to fame in the 1970s as lead guitarist with seminal band Roxy Music and is also a record producer who has worked with some of the most celebrated musicians in the world. Here is part of their conversation. Phil, I want to explore the writing side yes. of this because, of course, you are a composer, you're yeah. a producer. Tell me about writing. Well, we're in this little room here 
and uh, it's very important when you're writing I think to have daylight so it becomes very organic and natural and basically I sit here and I have computer software and stuff so I can record myself and I in this particular room and because of COVID and everything I've simplified everything so I have one amplifier one microphone a bunch of guitars and a little interface and what I tend to do is to not think first of all I don't think about what I'm going to do I try and not think about I just play whatever happens happens so it's this sort of a chaos theory I just play and I record it and then I'll play another track and maybe I'll play like 20 tracks on top of each other and then I will go through it all panning for goal seeing if there's an idea there or something and then I will then use craftsmanship which is stuff I've acquired over the last 50 years to hone down the idea and then I will go onto the computer and do things that you're not meant to do on purpose I will look for the weirdest instruments from all around the world and drag them into what I've just done and put them against other things so it's a bit like maybe it's a bit like painting or something but with sound you create a sort of a rough sort of pitch and then you look at it and you see or you listen to it and you see if there's a musical idea there that's interesting but that is the way I've developed it so it doesn't start with a top line and a melody in a conventional songwriting sense and so it's led me to very different types of music and you know sometimes over the years there have been times when I've wanted to actually express words and my feelings with words in songs and then that happened for about three albums worth and I thought oh I've got nothing left to say here (laughs) so I will now work with other writers who are going to sing their own words because I always think that the person writing the song should sing his own words. So I'm not a conventional jobbing songwriter in that sense. I'm not interested in that. Roxy Music's Phil Manzanera there speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin for last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. Staying on a musical note for our final highlight of the show, regular listeners and readers of Monocle will know by now that last year saw the birth of our sister female-focused magazine, Confect, and its monthly audio accompaniment, Confect Corner, packed full of interviews with literary stars, fashion historians, keen-eyed photographers and packages from our network of global correspondents. This month's episode did not disappoint. Alongside an interview with prominent French author Leila Slimani and a visit to Scottish brand La Fetiche's studios in Fife. We also heard from DJ and music journalist Kate Hutchinson, who discussed the importance of jazz clubs and how they have shaped the genre over the past century. The night I gatecrashed a jazz club in Paris was the night I saw jazz anew. The upstairs room was a no-frills, wooden-tabled, smell-the-bleach kind of place where the music was the only thing that mattered and the homely ambience gave the impression of sitting in someone's kitchen. There was no stuffiness, no snobby reverence suffocating the atmosphere. 
I say gate crashed. Really, it was Los Angeles saxophonist Kamasi Washington, figurehead of the current jazz revival, who turned up there after performing at the nearby Bataclan. He and his band members bouldered in as though in a western film, kicking down the saloon door with their spurs and joined the wirier, greyer in-house group on the tiny stage. I had tagged along with this LA cohort, chasing the thrill of the night. With Washington steadying himself on a carved wooden cane and launching into a cosmic take on a standard, his band swelling behind him like a wave, it felt like a bit of a Red Sea parting moment, the old guard meeting the young guns. Impromptu jams such as these are par for the course in jazz, which, just like dance music, has a propensity to continue into the small hours, as though the players physically can't put down their instruments. This is often where the magic happens. So it feels particularly cruel that just as Washington had helped to usher in a new generation of fans in recent years, ones who began embracing what was once considered kind of difficult music, the pandemic put a cork in all the fun. In New York, jazz clubs have been an essential part of the after-dark life of the city since their halcyon years in the 1920s, but they are now clinging on by a guitar string. During Prohibition, there were more than 500 swinging speakeasies offering bootleg liquor and live music in Harlem alone. Indeed, as the New Yorker said, to think of American music is to think of those nightclubs stretched out along the streets. Now there are comparatively few that offer live jazz, with many announcing their closure and the future of others, such as the legendary Birdland and Village Vanguard clubs, remaining uncertain. Los Angeles, meanwhile, lost the Blue Whale, the beating heart of the city's thriving jazz community, when it closed last December. Jazz music is a genre that, perhaps more than any other, has been shaped by its spaces. When the style of ragtime and blues swept from New Orleans up to New York and beyond, as black musicians fled the rural South in search of better lives and work in the Great Migration, the music filled vast ballrooms with big swing bands to match. This was the sound of the jazz age, the music of dancing. The venues, which were mainly congregated around Harlem, were, with the exception of the Cotton Club, often racially integrated, which was very radical for the time, as well as being sexually licentious and open till late. At Small's Paradise, which was owned by the titular first African-American night spot owner, first name Ed, there was a 6am floor show along with breakfast for the straight-through crew. Over at the neighbouring Savoy, the home of Happy Feet, People lindy hopped so hard that the floor had to be replaced every three years. Jazz stopped being a dancing soundtrack, in the US at least, because of the wartime cabaret tax in 1944. According to Jeff Gold's Sitting In, Jazz Clubs of the 1940s and 50s, one of the few books on this topic, it meant that shows and entertainment became all but unaffordable. However, these challenges led to other innovations in the genre. The focus shifted towards smaller groups and experimental individualism began to take centre stage, with the dissonant bebop sound in the spotlight, trumpeted by the likes of Miles Davis and saxophonist Charlie Parker. 
Fast forward to London now, and the much-talked-about jazz scene is very much indebted to its nightclubs and DIY venues that encourage a party atmosphere and inspire a deep feeling of community. At the Church of Sound, the show is in the round, with everyone on their feet, meditating, dancing or whooping when a player takes their solo, a joyful well of mutual support. Or their steam down, a triumph of togetherness, where the young crowd are often so whipped up that the entire floor can turn into a mosh pit. The lack of live gigs during and after the pandemic has had a profound effect on jazz musicians, a reported 49% of whom make their income from performing. And with strict safety measures in place at the venues that have reopened, shows have largely gone back to being seated and with capacity reduced as a result. Who knows what effect it might eventually have on the music, making it more claustrophobic or more sombre perhaps. Jazz needs a lively late night atmosphere in which to sprawl out and twist itself into new shapes. It is rebel music, breaking the rules and forever challenging conformity. If we don't preserve its venues, then we risk losing the heartland of this creativity. And that's not to mention those heady nights of oblivion where the players create something beyond music that the audiences will never forget. That was DJ and music journalist Kate Hutchinson for Conflict Corner. You can listen to this month's episode now on monocle.com forward slash radio or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Markus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening. <laughs>